0: Welcome to episode 16 of The Tar Sends Diplomat, the satirical diplomatic thriller being podcast, chapter by chapter, by author Keith Halliday. Diplomatic satire seems to be hot these days. If you haven't seen it already, check out the Ambassador's television series by the BBC. McGregor would fit right in at the British Embassy in Tazbekistan. And now... Recording from a podcast booth in an undisclosed location, we can neither confirm nor deny that it's also in Tazbekistan. Here is Keith with episode 16. The Tar Sands Diplomat, chapter 18, a strange way to say thank you. They released me from Edith Cavell Hospital around lunchtime the following day. It hurt to breathe and my head ached like a combination of jet lag, hangover and brain tumor surgery. It seemed to me, in my supersensitive state, that the head nurse was maniacally shrieking at me. Apparently, they'd found the diplomatic passport in my pocket the night before and insisted that I pay before being released. They were used to dealing with diplomats and expected me to make a run for it at any second, hiding behind my diplomatic immunity to dodge my hospital bill. Isn't someone from the Canadian mission here? I asked slowly, squinting into the unexpectedly bright Brussels light. Did they call? Maybe from finance? The head nurse's eyes narrowed. You could tell she was wondering if they'd have to sick one of those giant Belgian poodle police dogs on me. My head pounded as I did the math and counted out the 500 and 100 euro notes. This is why, I thought to myself, the well-prepared Foreign Service officer carries a backup supply of high-denomination euro notes. I still had some 50-pound notes and U.S. hundreds I could change with the doorman if I collapsed on my way to the cab and had to be readmitted. I moved slowly towards the exit. Try not to breathe too much. People stared at the large bandage on my forehead. I caught a cab to my flat. My bruised brain seemed to feel each cobblestone as we bumped along, and the horn of the tram that my driver cut off echoed like an ocean liner's. The elevator was hors service, and my ribs stung painfully as I puffed my way up the stairs to flat number 31. After cleaning myself up, I had a light lunch at La Cancaillerie and allowed Bertrand to pour me several restorative eau de vie afterwards. Bertrand had already heard about the riot at the ambassador's residence the night before and told me what happened after I was knocked unconscious. Apparently everyone except Senator Buffart and I had escaped out the back doors. Kennedy had the presence of mind to shout at the rioters from a safe distance that the police were on the way, and our uninvited guests quickly finished hanging a protest banner, pouring black goo everywhere, and emptying the liquor cabinet before fleeing the scene. The anarchists bludgeoned the neighbor's dog viciously with a croquet mallet, Exclaimed Bertrand. Beasts! And they assaulted the chef. My friend in the police says he was found bruised and with his clothes ripped to bits. I nodded, finished my drink, and proceeded to the mission. The elevator doors opened to reveal Sherlock, holding a pile of ring bound reports. I've finished my report, he said cheerfully. I'll be back home in time for the Bruins game. Finished already? I exclaimed, wincing at the sound of my own voice. What about last night? What does that have to do with the murder? said Sherlock. A junior Canadian diplomat gets in an argument with a Russian call girl and she just bonks him on the head to rob him. The Belgians say it's pretty clear what happened. Then there's the possibility that the call girl gave the duty officer's briefcase to someone, or the leaks came from somewhere else. There's really not much more to say, but the Belgians are going to keep digging. I looked at Sherlock. Do you actually believe they've done any digging at all? Come on, McGregor, he replied. Don't be so cynical. They're professional investigators, just like me. "'That's exactly what I'm afraid of,' I muttered. "'Hey, that's not fair,' exclaimed Sherlock angrily. "'Julian was a colleague and a friend,' I said. "'People put more effort into lost pet searches than you put into this investigation.' I pushed past him. My head was pounding, and I felt like I was about to vomit. Down the hall, things seemed strangely normal at the mission. I could hear Lucille arguing with travel on the phone. "'Full fare,' she barked. "'Next flight. Yes, the ambassador has approved.' She slammed down the phone. I slipped unobserved into my office. I grabbed my iPod, then replaced it on the shelf. I really needed total silence. Outside my door, I heard footsteps approaching. Thank you, Kennedy, gushed Cornelia. Don't worry, said Kennedy. It wasn't your fault. They walked past. I told the ambassador you weren't the senior officer on the visit. Is he still complaining about his hand? Yes, I've been asking him about it. I told him the bruising looked horrible. After a while, it began to seem strangely silent. Where was everybody? I walked down the hallway and eventually spotted a trade commissioner headed for the elevators. It looked like everyone was in the salle Polyvalente, as we insist on calling the multipurpose room. The whole staff was standing in an informal crowd listening to the ambassador. I walked in quietly, not wanting to disturb the proceedings. Sherlock's pile of reports was beside his briefcase on the side table. I helped myself to one and moved to listen to Ambassador Glostrom. Glostrom droned on about Can Do Canada and all the important results we'd achieved. Listening with half an ear, I flipped through Sherlock's report. Glostrom's buzzing faded into background as I read the executive summary. My blood pressure began to rise in that sensation I get when I read unbelievably stupid documents. Was this some kind of bad joke? I checked the cover. It didn't say draft. I flipped to the end. The last page didn't say just kidding, like the April Fool's Day crisis reports Lefranc Frank used to send out when he ran the Soviet desk. Sherlock seemed entirely convinced that a red-haired Russian call girl had killed Julian, even though the Belgian police had failed to find any trace of a red-haired Russian call girl in Brussels. Apparently Natasha from Brussels' escort had switched back to being a natural blonde and had an ironclad alibi from going to the World Bank's annual meeting with another client. Julian's phone records didn't show any calls or texts to strange numbers, so Sherlock deduced that he'd met the call girl at the stagiaire party or on the street. A thousand questions leaped out at me, even with my bruised brain. Why have prostitute ads with phone numbers if you never phoned them? Why hadn't they interviewed the journalists who published the leak? Where were the witnesses who saw Julian leave the stagiaire party with a red-haired woman? Agatha Christie would have tossed the whole thing into the fireplace. At that point, I began to get even angrier. My head began to hurt again. If Sherlock's report went to Ottawa and the Belgian police, it was quite likely no one would put any serious effort into finding Julian's real murderers. Lieutenant Fourquet of the diplomatic section did not seem like an always-get-his-man sort of fellow. I looked up to see if the self-congratulation party was still going on. Glostrom was still talking. Next, I would like to thank Kennedy. We've obviously been the subject of a concerted attack by the Green Alliance. Kennedy's leadership last night at the official residence was invaluable. Without her, we couldn't have had a successful can-do Canada, and certainly the damage and embarrassment would have been far worse last night if she hadn't been there. And thanks to Jim Holmes for stepping up when the team needed him. On the matter of Julian's tragic death, Jim has finalized his report and it's going to Ottawa as soon as possible. Finalized his report, I thought. I opened my mouth to say something, but it was just too absurd. Glostrom continued. Finally, for those who haven't heard, McGregor is in hospital suffering from severe head injuries. I'm not in the hospital. I'm fine, I said. Like an ex-politician ignoring hecklers, Glostrom kept addressing the crowd. He tripped and fell last night banging his head on the floor. "'I was carrying the senator to safety, and she fell on me,' I said. "'McGregor's not able to work,' continued Glostrom, "'and fortunately we were able to get him transferred home immediately. "'He should be ready for travel tomorrow. "'Lucille has already booked his flight.' "'Poor McGregor,' said Sherlock sadly from somewhere to my left, "'apparently having forgotten already "'that he'd seen me at the elevator five minutes before. "'I'm right here,' I said loudly. "'I'm fine.' "'Every head in the room turned towards me. "'McGregor!' exclaimed Glostrom his face turning red, like he was having a heart attack. He moved towards me, the crowd parting to let him through. Glostrom wasn't my favorite ambassador, but at least he had the courtesy to recognize me for my injuries and of what I'd done the night before. I extended my hand for the ambassadorial handshake and smiled. Glostrom ignored my hand and moved to within six inches of me, a vein bulging in his forehead. This looked like it was going to be a more emotional thank you than after a typical ministerial visit. Then he screamed right in my face, McGregor, get out of this mission before you screw anything else up. This is all your fault. Get out. Immediately, he shrieked, banging his fist into his palm with each exclamation. Involuntarily, I took a step back. I'd seen him be a sarcastic bully, but usually a quietly hostile one. This was as close as I'd ever seen an ambassador get to foaming at the mouth. He turned aggressively to Lucille. Is there a flight tonight? Right now? Glostrom glared at me and raised his arms, as if he was about to launch another rant. But my colleagues just stared at me, several with looks of unmitigated hostility. Do you hear me? yelled Glostrom. Take your bow tie and your fountain pen and get out of here, right now! I was stunned. This was horrible. It was even worse than the time Elizabeth dressed me down in front of our dinner guests the first time I tried to carve a duck, and it shot off the platter on a film of duck fat onto her friend's lap. Trying to maintain my dignity... I turned on my heel and walked towards the door. Lucille ran after me and pressed some papers into my hand. Your flight details. Make sure you clean the staff quarters and leave the key inside. Kennedy was checking her Blackberry. Cornelia was looking at the carpet. The trade commissioners looked like they were about to burst into joyous song. The Tar Sands Diplomat, Chapter 19, Persona Non Grata. I staggered out of the mission, shaken to my core. The Foreign Service is not just another government department. It's like a brotherhood, and I'd spent my entire adult life as a member of it. Of course, a career in international affairs is not all tea and scones. In times of stress, brother and sister officers have shouted and cursed at me. I've been accused of failure before, more than once actually. And being humiliated by ambassadors from time to time is an occupational hazard. But never with such vitriol, never in front of the entire staff, and especially not after being accused of personally bungling an entire ministerial visit. Now I was persona non grata, and I hadn't been PNG'd by a thuggish regime annoyed by my work with democracy activists, but by my own ambassador. My footsteps took me along Avenue de Terverin. I could hardly show myself at La Quinquairie or La Renda Freque. I couldn't go to my staff quarters, since housing was probably already there taking photos of scrapes on the wall from previous tenants to bill me for. I needed somewhere dark and quiet. The cathedral crypt was an option, but it was always full of tourists. Instead, I proceeded to the Belgian Royal Museum for Central Africa. I mused on recent events as I walked through the history exhibits, which as I mentioned earlier, stopped suddenly in the 1960s when the Belgians got kicked out of the Congo. I paused in the wild animal diorama. Could that story have been true, that the museum had a stuffed Congolese man in the diorama until the dictator of Zaire complained sometime in the 1970s? Feeling a bit calmer, finally, I sat down in a quiet corner. I noticed I still had Sherlock's report in my blazer pocket. I read it cover to cover. Someone once said that after the first blaze of anger burns away, it sometimes leaves fiery coals. These blaze less brightly, but burn more hotly. I didn't want to kick the cat down the official residence stairs like some petulant ambassador. Instead, I felt a quiet resolution growing inside me time-serving senior mandarins at the department might be content having an incompetent investigator and an unsolved murder on the books. But I was not. I decided to call my old friend LeFranc. With a career in the Foreign Service behind him, his advice would be sound. Perhaps I was really cracking up and deserved to go home. My phone battery was dead, which was annoying for once, so I got a handful of coins from the front desk and plugged them into the ancient payphone in the lobby. Dr. McCallan's office, calling for Mr. LeFranc, I said when he answered. This was our code for LeFranc to call me back from a safe location 20 minutes later. LeFranc's daughter might be a senior eavesdropper at the Canadian security establishment, but she hadn't yet connected that LeFranc's doctor's name was the same as his favorite scotch. It's okay, McGregor. My daughter's out. Let's hope she's not tapping her own phone, I replied. I recounted the whole story to LeFranc, plugging more coins into the phone as we went along. At the end, he was silent for a few moments. "'You're too far up that river to turn back now, McGregor. "'Like Marlow, too far into the jungle.' "'I'm not getting on the plane tomorrow,' I replied. "'Sounds like it's time for me to visit my other daughter in Toronto. "'It'll be days before they figure it out. "'I'll meet you at the Mannequin piss near the Grand Place at noon tomorrow. "'I'll take the overnight flight.' "'Do you have money and a passport?' I asked. "'I knew that LeFranc's daughters viewed him as a flight risk. "'I only let them confiscate my expired passport.' "'My new one and plenty of cash are buried "'where I do my old man gardening,' he hung up. "'Now I felt good, better than in years, in fact. "'I knew exactly what to do. "'I waited until 3.01 p.m. "'so Lucille would be sure to be outside smoking "'and left her a voicemail complaining "'that I wasn't in business class. "'That would reassure her I was taking the flight. "'Then I went to the bank "'and withdrew as much cash as I could from my cards. "'What I needed next was a safe house "'where I could stay undetected. "'There was a small hotel nearby,' but that would be expensive, and they would insist on seeing my passport and filling out one of those little cards. Belgium still ran that quaint French-style system where hotels provide guest lists to the police, which should help Brussels' version of Inspector LaBelle when the jackal next makes a business trip to the city. Then it hit me. Housing had mistakenly given me keys to both vacant mission flats in my building. I moved my things from number 31 to number 21, then went to the mission. I made sure I arrived just before closing time, so housing would not be tempted to do anything like inspect the flat with me in person. I gave them the key to number 31, and, for verisimilitude, made a fuss about not being responsible for the scratches on the wall. Then I promised to leave the other key on the table when I went to the airport the next morning. With that, I walked out of the mission a free man. I even had, if I may say, a spring in my step. I still had two things to do before I officially disappeared. My head was full of questions for Cornelia and for Sherlock. And I needed somehow to find an opportunity to ask them. Cornelia was predictable. First, her counter-interrogation skills would not pose much of a problem. Second, she would feel guilty about me being sent home and would be sympathetic. Third, she was probably at the frite stand in Place Jourdain, grabbing a snack after work before going drinking. The frites at Place Jourdain were the finest in Brussels, and Julian had told me they played no small part in Cornelia's ballooning skirt size. On that hunch. I proceeded as briskly as my pounding head would permit towards Place Jourdain. My mouth even began to water. The frite is an art form in Brussels. They use only the most carefully selected potatoes and fry them with fresh oil at two different temperature settings. Canadians will be surprised to hear that they somehow managed to produce excellent frite without using genetically modified canola oil. The stand in Place Jourdain also offers over 100 varieties of mayonnaise and some, like La Mayonnaise Richard Coeur de Lyon, exclusive secret recipes. I suspect the latter is mayonnaise with Worcestershire sauce mixed in, but would never dare say so within earshot of the owner. Each chip is perfectly formed and is served fresh in a paper cone with a small wooden fork. I believe the stand in Place Rodin to be one of the few remaining triumphs of European civilization, like the National Portrait Gallery in London and the grounds of the Musée Rodin in Paris that don't yet have busloads of Japanese tourists and a co-marketing arrangement with the Discovery Channel. On a park bench in the distance, I saw a round shape dressed in that familiar dark brown colour favoured by the young bureaucratette collection of the department store near headquarters in Ottawa. I did not think highly of a Cornelia, but it never pays to underestimate one's opponent. Like the French in 1940, she was capable of determined resistance if attacked conventionally with too much advance warning. I needed to emulate Guderian in the Ardennes forest. I needed to attack strongly, in an unexpected way, throw her off balance psychologically, and quickly break through. With the cone of chips in my hand, I affected surprise and sat beside her. After exchanging a few phony war civilities, I smiled and planned my attack. For the schwerpunkt of my strike, I chose Cornelia's weakest point, the overlap between her sensitivity about her competence and her drinking. I just needed an opportunity. I listened to Cornelia prattle on for about 20 feet. Cardinal Richelieu once bragged that if you gave him six lines written by the most honest man, he would find something in them to hang him. But he probably just would have had Cornelia taken to the Bastille for boring him to death. Finally, Cornelia stopped gibbering about the unfairness of the department's new cost of living index and mumbled something about being sorry that I was taking the blame for the whole can-do Canada debacle. I seized the moment to strike. "'And I can't believe,' I replied sympathetically, "'that Sherlock is telling everyone that you were drunk at the stagiaire party.' and also left classified tells in the duty officer's briefcase. Sherlock had said nothing of the kind, but Cornelia gaped at me like General Gamla after the panzers broke through at Sedan. She cracked immediately. He's saying what? she exclaimed. I was not drunk at the stagiaire party, and why does everyone keep asking me about it? It's not a crime to go to a party. Lilia, the mission stagiaire, and Julian were there too. Even Kennedy was thinking about going, and I'm not the one who lost the duty officer's briefcase. I was surprised that Kennedy was thinking of going, and didn't remember hearing this before. A stagiaire party doesn't seem like Kennedy's style, I remarked. She asked me all about it. I think she feels old sometimes. But I asked her if she wanted our stagiaire to invite her, and she said no. Did you see Julian leave with anyone, I asked? The famous red haired murderer, perhaps? She laughed. Of course not. I'm not even sure when he left. And did you, I asked, Ever used the duty officer's briefcase to temporarily carry confidential documents, like Sherlock is saying? Her lip twitched for a second. I sighed inwardly. Did anyone take security seriously anymore? Cornelia recovered enough to deny the charge. No, and even if I did, hypothetically speaking, I wasn't copied on the email that was in the papers. This was true, I admitted to myself. She wasn't important enough. Cornelia finished her freet and left me, still muttering about Sherlock and the unfairness of life. Next, I had to track down Sherlock. I hurried over to his hotel. My plan was to engineer an accidental meeting on the street. He would never believe it if I just called him. I bought a copy of Le Soir, picked a bench with a good view of the approaches to Sherlock's hotel, and laid in wait. I hoped he wasn't already in his hotel room, watching cable television and eating cheese sandwiches so he could bank his per diem. After about 45 minutes, I began to fear that I would have to call him in his room, pretending I wanted to apologize. This would be too awkward to be believable. He was a pricklier character than Cornelia, and would require different tactics. I would have to treat him with the care I usually reserved for hostile and unpredictable foreign officials. Shortly after this, however, I saw him round the corner. He carried a grocery bag from Del Delhaize, which suggested he hadn't dined yet. I rose and walked towards him. Jim, I said. What are you doing in this neighborhood? My hotel, he said, eyeing me with considerable suspicion. Well, I said, trying to sound sheepish. I'd been thinking of calling you anyway. I read your report. I have to admit it's very convincing. I'm sorry for giving you so much trouble about it. I wasn't feeling well. I pointed to the bruise on my forehead. He harrumps briefly, and I nodded apologetically as he ran through the list of my offenses. I'm very sorry about what I said, Jim. Totally uncalled for. I tapped the bandage on my head. But let me make it up to you, for old times' sake. I'm a history buff, and I was just headed out to Waterloo to see the battlefield one more time before I leave. How about grabbing dinner at the restaurant in Napoleon's old headquarters? My treat. I'm not sure if it was his interest in Waterloo as an ex-military man, or the prospect of a free dinner, but after some quibbling, Sherlock finally agreed to join me. We chatted about the army as the taxi took us to Waterloo. It turned out that Sherlock's grandfather had been in the Lake Superior Regiment. That gave me a chance to wax patriotic about my commemorative walk through Kanaka Heist, following the regiment's path as it liberated the Belgian and Dutch coastline. I remarked on how few Canadians had ever heard of the battle, or knew the Canadian army took 6,000 casualties doing it. It turned out that this was a favourite theme of Sherlock's, and he seemed to look at me in a new light. Foreign affairs people don't usually give soldiers the time of day, he remarked. My charm offensive continued as we chatted cheerfully about Wellington and Napoleon as we approached Waterloo. Sherlock was surprisingly well informed about the battle. He'd even read at least one good book about it, and by the sounds of it, several bad ones it seemed like he inflicted the Christopher Plummer movie version of the battle on his wife with some regularity. I avoided mentioning the mission or Julian's murder, and gave him a good tour. We stopped at a memorial to a French cavalry officer who'd survived a dozen battles with Napoleon, only to die in the final one at Waterloo. It was just a small stone marker, off the beaten tourist path, and without the usual quadrilingual interpretive panel beside it. Sherlock and I both stared at it silently for several minutes. We were both moved, I think. We were tired, but in a good way, as I led Sherlock to Le Bivouac de l'Empereur to begin pouring overstrength Trappist ale into him. He was in an excellent mood. It struck me that I should probably always put in the extra effort to treat my colleagues like potentially hostile foreigners. I waited patiently for Sherlock to bring up his report. When he did, I was ready with my question. How did you manage to get to the bottom of it all so quickly? I asked. Your report is finalized already. It's a superhuman effort. Sherlock gave his acceptance speech. Well, I couldn't have done it all myself. The ambassador was very helpful, and so was Kennedy. I couldn't have done it without her. She was a real thought partner. She even drafted some of it. Really, I said, but her name isn't on it. No, no, said Sherlock. She's a very modest person. Well, I said, it's a good thing you didn't listen to me and get the oil sands all mixed up in this. The Prime Minister's office would have been livid. We laughed together. The thing I don't understand, I said, is how Julian communicated with the prostitute. Your report says his phone records don't show any calls or texts to strange numbers. Yeah, that's right, said Sherlock. The Belgians traced all the numbers, mostly mission staff or European officials, plus a few friends, plus a French number that ended up belonging to the daughter of that French deputy ambassador you were telling me about, and none after 8 o'clock on the night of the murder. So, I said, how did he connect with the prostitute? On the street? That's the traditional way, isn't it? Joked Sherlock. Or maybe he met her in a strip club. He signaled for another beer. He didn't seem to mind Trappist ales when I was paying. "'And no one saw him at the stagiaire party with a redhead?' I asked. "'No,' said Sherlock, "'but it was pretty dark and pretty wild. "'Who knows? He could have met her there. "'Did he have a second phone, maybe?' "'Did you find another phone or any chargers in the apartment?' "'Nope,' replied Sherlock. "'There's one thing I was curious about, Jim. "'Did you find any fingerprints on the tourist map "'or pornographic magazines?' "'Sure, it's listed in my report. "'No useful fingerprints at all on those.' Not even Julian's, I asked? Sherlock thought about this for a second. No? They said no fingerprints at all, he shrugged. I decided not to quibble with him. He might clam up completely. I nodded and he went on. We did find Julian's fingerprints on the business card of that Sleeth guy you mentioned, you know, from West Can Energy. Hmm, I said. Going back to the prostitute theory, why would one steal the duty officer's briefcase full of boring Canadian documents? What's in it for her? Sherlock said... Maybe she just grabbed it because it looked prestigious. I recalled the battered Samsonite with the garish maple leaf on the side. Any murderer would find it too conspicuous to carry away from the scene of the crime. But I didn't quibble with Sherlock on this either. Maybe she had another client, and she thought he would like what was inside it, Sherlock continued. You know, even eco-terrorists like Russian prostitutes. I tried not to get distracted by Sherlock's random musings about the sexual preferences of eco-terrorists. Did you find out anything about the leak, I asked? Email? Phone records? He shrugged. That never helps. No one is idiotic enough to email it from their own email account. And if they fax it, they always use some hotel or airport lounge fax machine and you can't find out who it was anyway. So, I thought. He hadn't even tried to do a serious search. I wonder why, I said, they leaked it to the European papers and also the Canadian ones. If they were European ecologists, why bother looking up emails or fax numbers in Canada and going to all that trouble to send it across the Atlantic? Just to make us look bad, said Sherlock. The Greenies hate Canada, bastards. I could extract nothing else useful from Sherlock before I poured him out of the cab in front of his hotel. Have a good flight home tomorrow, McGregor. Go Leafs, he slurred as he wobbled towards the lobby light. That's a wrap for episode 16 of The Tar Diplomat. If you haven't already, please leave a review on iTunes or on Amazon.ca for the book itself. And don't forget to tune in next week for episode 17, available via iTunes, Stitcher, and your favorite podcasting platforms.